you, uh, if you're just joining us by podcast, you just missed a very poignant song that our worship team just did. And I, I really do think that anyone who's been married any length of time could identify with that song. It is very easy, isn't it, to wake up one day and realize that as time has passed, all of the things that clamor for your attention have diverted your energy away from your marriage. And you can feel like, you can wake up one day and just feel like your roommates. And you don't dance anymore. And you don't smile at each other anymore. And you don't date each other anymore. And you don't take long walks and just hold hands together anymore. And you don't just talk. So we've been trying to remind ourselves of the singular importance of this mysterious relationship called marriage in this series that we've been doing called New Marriage, Same Spouse. And we've been looking at one particular passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and turn there with me again to Ephesians chapter 5. And this is arguably the the longest and the most complete description of marriage that we get in all of uh, Scripture. And I've been, I know, I, I know every week I say this, that, you know, I have you reading this passage all the way through. I'm doing it because I just think it's such an important passage, and and I think that, you know, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that the Scriptures give us God's design. It doesn't, they don't leave us wondering what marriage is supposed to be like. They, They give it to us right here in the Scriptures, and we need to know where those passages are, where to go to, and sometimes repetition is just really important in, uh, in remembering where these passages are. And so we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start reading from verse 21. We'll read all the way through the passage again, and and we'll continue this series. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, uh, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, and he tells women to submit to their husbands. And I think you would agree to me that in our culture, those are fighting words. That sounds, uh, that sounds very oppressive, Though that's not in any way, shape, or form, the intent of this passage is not intended to be oppressive in any way, shape, or form. And we said this last week. We started talking about this last week. And because today we're going to continue to talk about these roles that men and women play, I just want to go back and review real quickly for you. I want to review four things that we said last week, very quickly. The first thing we said last week is that there are differences between men and women that extend beyond the biological. And we saw that last week. You see it in this passage in the difference of the roles that God assigns to men and to women in marriage. Okay, so there are differences between men and women that extend beyond the biological. Here's the second thing we said last week, that those differences between men and women originate in the creation. God created men and women to be different. And Paul keeps 
taking us back to the story of creation from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Genesis chapter 3 to remind us that he's not talking to us about his opinions. A lot of people want to accuse Paul of being very patriarchal and very oppressive. And, you know, this is just Paul's idea of marriage. But he's saying, no, this is how God created men and women. Uh, they find that the differences between men and women find their origin in the creation. Third thing that we said last week is that these differences between men and women have been distorted through what theologians would call the fall of humanity. And we talked about this last week. Fallen, unredeemed masculinity tends toward, uh, tends to be tyrannical and oppressive and demeaning. That's fallen, un- unredeemed masculinity. On the other hand, unredeemed Fallen femininity tends to be overly dependent and even masochistic in her relationship with men. And I'll tell you something, by the way, if you want to understand the stunning popularity of the book Fifty Shades of Grey, which is now going to be made into a movie, by the way, if you want to understand the stunning popularity of that book and that movie, all you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3. I've kind of watched uh, commentators on TV, and I've read uh, people writing in the paper and things about this book, and, and they can't understand why it's so popular. And I just kind of watch with some degree of amusement that all you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3, and it explains it. An unredeemed, demeaning man and an overly dependent, masochistic woman. And that explains Fifty Shades of Grey. And not only does it explain Fifty Shades of Grey, but it also explains the history of men and women throughout the ages. An oppressive patriarchy. That's essentially what you have. And the question that we asked last week is, what in the world is the solution? If you look at the course of human history, it doesn't appear that there is a solution to these differences and to the the distortions in the relationship between men and women. It doesn't look like there's a solution. Humanity has proposed a number of solutions, ranging from patriarchal traditionalism to radical feminism, but we saw last week that all of those fail at healing the distortions between men and women. And we saw it and we said, this is the fourth thing we said last week, that Christ is the only one who can heal these distortions between the genders. He's the only one who can do it. And I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading this, but when Paul says, women, submit to your husbands, he doesn't say submit to your husbands in a needy, dependent, masochistic way like Fifty Shades of Grey. Nor does he say rebel against your husbands in a self-assertive, I am woman, hear me roar kind of way. He says submit to your husbands as to Christ. He points them to Christ. And likewise, he doesn't doesn't say to husbands, he doesn't say you're the head of your wife like a Taliban, uh, like, like, like the Taliban in an oppressive, traditionalistic kind of way. But he also doesn't say shrink back from the leadership role that you have, never assert yourself, and always defer to your wife. He says, men, you're the head of your wife in the same way that Christ is head of the church. In other words, sacrificially and selflessly and courageously. The solution, you see, 
to the gender distortions between men and women isn't to ignore the roles that God gave men and women, nor is it to just reverse who's doing the oppression. The solution is the gospel. Only the gospel eliminates the oppression and these distortions by having men and women play the unique God-given roles that they, that, that they have in Christ. In Christ. You see, the gospel... We said this last week. I hope you understand this. The gospel is actually far more sophisticated and far more, new, and far more nuanced than any of the human solutions to, world, to the world's problems. You just have to take time sometimes to think them through. And a lot of people just won't take that kind of time. But the gospel is always more sophisticated and always more nuanced than any of the world's solutions to human problems. It always is. Okay, now that's what we talked about last week. Today, what I want to do is I want to, I want to just continue that, that, that topic of the roles that men and women play. And I want, to, I want to elaborate on what male headship means. When, when, the, when Paul says that men are the head of their wives, that the husband is the head of the wife, I want to talk about what that means, and I want to talk about what it doesn't mean. And I want to draw out what I think are some very practical implications for marriage. So let's start with this. Let's start with this. Headship, first, headship means uh, completion. Headship means completion. When Paul says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. He is, as I uh, said a little while ago, referring back to the book of Genesis and the manner in which God created Adam and Eve. Some of you will recall, some of you who may know, uh, may have recently read the book of Genesis, you will remember that the book of Genesis teaches that God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. But when he creates Eve, when God creates Eve, he does it just a little differently. He doesn't create her in the same way that he creates Adam out of the dust of the ground. No, the way that he creates her is that he takes her out of Adam's side. This is why Paul says the the husband is the head of the wife. By that, what he means is that he is the, Adam was the source of Eve. God did the creating, but he took her out of Adam's side, not out of the dust of the ground. But if you carefully read the creation account, there are two very significant things that happen in the creation account as it relates to the creation of Adam and Eve. Here's the first one. When God creates Everything else in the universe, in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, when he creates everything else in the universe, God steps back and he looks at it and he says, it was good. It's sort of like he's an artist and he's just looking at his artwork and he goes, dude, that is brilliant. And you know, any other artist that did that, it would be arrogant, but it's God, so he can't be arrogant. But he's like, man, that is good. I am good. But when he creates Adam, and this is before the fall, by the way, This is before the fall happens. When he creates Adam, he says, this is fascinating. He says, not good. Specifically, he says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Now, the second thing that happens, very, I want you to understand this in uh, relationship to the first thing here. The second thing that happens is that when God created humans... He said he's going to do so in such a way that humans would, like a mirror, they would reflect back to God his image. He said, we're going to, he said I'm going to create humans in my image. 
And in creating humanity, human beings would reflect his personality and his nature and his goodness and all of his traits. Well, what's significant about these two things that happen? What's so significant about those two things? Well, here's the significance. The significance is that Adam alone couldn't fully reflect the image of God. In other words, masculinity was not sufficient to fully reflect the image of God. Neither, by the way, was femininity. Eve alone couldn't fully reflect the image of God. Adam needed Eve, and Eve needed Adam. Together, both masculine and feminine and feminine reflected who God is. There is a masculine part of God, and there is a feminine part of God. Both of those were needed to reflect, to fully reflect the image of God. You see, each gender has in itself a fundamental incompleteness. So yes, Adam is the head of Eve in that he is her source, but Adam is incomplete without her. Eve completes Adam. And Eve is incomplete without Adam. Adam completes Eve. You could say it this way, that they are both equal in their incompleteness. Or you you could even say it this way. You could say that they're both equal in their need for the other. Now, this this has two very practical implications for marriage. Actually, there's more, but we only have time for two. And here's the first one. Because you've got... Because you've got two very different people who both need each other but are incomplete in and of themselves. In any healthy marriage, there is going to be conflict. That's one of the very practical implications of this. That in any healthy marriage, there is going to be conflict. There has to be, don't you see? Uh, Conflict in a marriage is part of God's process of developing a husband and wife into the people that he created them to be. It's just part of it. Men and women are different. And because they're different, you're going to oppose one another and you're going to butt heads. And that is a good thing. For the first time in your life, when you get married, for the first time in your life, you're being forced to face your incompleteness by looking at life through the eyes of the other gender and you can't run away. And you you say, we need healthy conflict in a marriage That's why it is always destructive to avoid conflict. If you ever hear a couple tell you that they don't have conflict, just know that all that means is that they're not doing the hard work of conflict. That's not a good thing if they don't have conflict. Conflict is good. You need to have that in a marriage. It's part of God's process. And here's the second implication I want you to get. Is that in a healthy marriage... Because neither one are complete in and of themselves. They both need each other, the husband and the wife. In a healthy marriage, both perspectives are given equal importance in the decision-making process. Okay? Now, I always have to say this. I always have to say this for the benefit of the traditional uh, patriarchal types that are always in conservative churches. Okay? Headship doesn't mean that the man's opinion is more important or, more, or, or, or superior to his wife's opinion. It doesn't mean that at all. Both parties in the marriage recognize that they are incomplete without the other. The wife needs the husband's perspective, 
And the husband needs the wife's perspective. And without both perspectives being considered equal and being considered important, then what you will have is one person oppressing the other person. I may have told you this before. I don't know. But when I, Amy and I were married, I had been, I had been single for many years. And as a single guy, I, I, I would just tell you, I didn't give much thought to food. Food was, it was a necessity to me, uh, obviously, but I didn't think about food much until I got hungry. When I got hungry, I thought about food. And in the evenings, when I got hungry, uh, I would eat. But I, I would do that at different times. I mean, you know, it just depended upon when I was hungry. I mean, it might be at 5 o'clock, it might not be till 10 o'clock, but I would eat when I got hungry. And, and I would always eat in front of the TV. Just turn the TV on, eat, watch TV, Okay. The first night that Amy and I got back from our our honeymoon, we were in our little apartment in Irving, which is a suburb of Dallas, and I got hungry. And so I go to the fridge, and I started to make something to eat, and Amy came in and asked me what I was doing. And I I said, "Uh, well, I'm I'm hungry, and uh, I'm going to have dinner and watch TV. And she started to cry. And I had no idea what she was crying about. And like every guy, when a woman starts to cry, I felt guilty. And I began to panic. And I began to try to search the hard drive of my mind. What could I have said? What did I do that could have possibly made her cry? Well, it turned out what she was crying about was that she thought of dinner as a time that we would sit down together over food like civilized human beings and just talk to each other. No TV. Just us, talking. (laughs) No TV. (laughs) And I asked, and this didn't help the crying, what would we talk about? I'm not saying follow everything I've done. I'm, I'm saying listen to the scriptures. Don't, you know. Okay, what is it? This meant something to her. And I'm, seriously, in a million years, uh, I would have never come up with the idea of us sitting down together every night, having dinner together and talk. I would have never come up with that. But we did it. And you know what? All of these years later, uh, we still do it. And it's become like this appointment that we have together as a family. Every night, we... We get together as a family. And I would say, my kids are teenagers. They wouldn't tell you. They would admit it, but they like it. I know they like it. They like the fact that we all come together as a family. Because in all of our busyness, at least, at least we have one appointment to be together as a family and connect. And I, I'm telling you, I would have never thought of that on my own. But it has contributed to the well-being of my family. And the point that I, the reason I tell you that is that I want you to understand that this is this is why God brings men and women together. It's why He brings a husband and a wife together. Individually, neither fully reflects the image of God, but together you do. And sometimes the man brings something to the equation, and sometimes the woman brings something to the equation. Both perspectives are important. Both perspectives contribute to the health of a marriage. And both perspectives, both the man and the woman, both, math, both masculinity and femininity, reflect together the image of God. So we need to move on. Headship means completion. Second thing that headship means is this. Headship means 
authority. And you need to understand that there is an authority structure that God has set up in marriage. Now, if I were a woman, this is where I would start to object. Because up to this point, we've been saying, you know, yeah, both husbands and wives need each other equally, and, and they're both equally incomplete. And you're probably saying, ladies, you're probably saying to yourself, that's fine, I get that, I understand that. But now all of a sudden, I throw a, a wrench in the spokes by saying that men have authority as head of their wives. And as a result, wives are supposed to submit. And you're probably asking yourself, well, how in the world can one person have authority over the other and still both of them be equal. Well, if you think about it, we see this. We see this exact relationship in the Godhead. One of the core uh, Christological debates in church history was how God the Son relates to God the Father. And what the church fathers decided, and this became a very core component of Orthodox Christian theology, is that while both God the Father and God the Son are both equally God, they have different roles, which requires God the Son to willingly submit to God the Father. Now, there's a very fancy way of saying this theologically. Theologically, the way that people would say this, is that they have ontological equality and functional distinction. That's a fancy way of saying that they are both equal in their being. God the Father and God the Son are both equal in their being, yet they are distinct in their roles. And the role of the Son is to willingly submit to the Father. Now that's precisely what we're talking about here between men and women. Neither a man is neither men or women are more valuable than the other. But functionally, they have distinct roles, which requires the wife to submit to her husband. And God created Adam and Eve to reflect this. If you guys will remember, we talked about this last week, that Adam was to be the namer. God created him to be the namer of all creation. In other words, he named everything. That demonstrated that he had responsibility and ultimate accountability for the state of the planet. Eve, on the other hand, was created to be Adam's uh, helper. Her gifts, her talents, her abilities, her perspective was to come along and help Adam carry out his God-given responsibility as the steward of the planet. And so Paul says here, on the basis of how God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, he he says, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, in the same way that God the Father is head of God the Son, and that God the Son submits to God the Father. One isn't more important than the other. They just have two different roles. And God the Son willingly chooses to submit to God the Father. And so you wives, you're not less important. You just have a functionally different role. And you willingly choose to submit to your husband. Now, what does that practically look like? When when we talk about this word authority, uh, what does that mean and what what doesn't it mean in a marriage? What does that practically look like? And I want to mention some things that it doesn't look like, that it doesn't mean, authority doesn't mean, and then I want to talk about what authority does mean, okay? So let me give you a few things that authority doesn't mean. Here's the first one. It does not mean, ladies, wives, it does not mean unconditional obedience, okay? It doesn't mean unconditional obedience to your husband. 
So when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, he doesn't mean that you submit to your husband in the same way that you submit to Christ. Why doesn't he mean that? Well, the way that we all submit to Christ, whether you're a man or a woman, the way that we all submit to Christ is unconditionally. We unconditionally obey Christ. But that's never true. Whether male or female, it's never true. We never unconditionally submit, unconditionally obey any human authority in that way. In fact, there are, I don't have time to go into them today, but there are examples in the Bible when human authority, like, like government, when human authority requires people to sin, we see it in Scripture that we are called to disobey. If human government says, you must do this, you must sin, then we are required to disobey human government in those times. And the same is true with a husband and a wife relationship. If, if a husband ever requires you to sin in any way, then, you, then your, uh, uh, the submission issue goes out. You, you, your responsibility to submit goes away if he ever asks you to sin. And so, for instance, if a husband were to beat you, get out. Get out. If a husband were to ask you to sell drugs or to use drugs or to help him use drugs or to buy drugs, leave. If he's forcing you into anything sinful, including things that are demeaning um, or dangerous to you, You have no obligation to submit to that whatsoever. And in fact, you have every obligation to get out in those circumstances. So authority doesn't mean unconditional obedience. It also doesn't mean, and I know we just talked about this, I'm just going to say one more thing about it. Authority doesn't mean one-sided decision-making. I don't have to elaborate, except I just want to say that this, that this passage is not supporting the old Victorian model of marriage that says the wife is supposed to shut her mouth and run errands and do all the wifey things and let the husband make all of the decisions. No, not at all. Wives should be part of the decision-making process for the family. They should be in there stating their opinion and hammering out decisions with their husband along with him. It doesn't mean that the husband makes all the decisions in the family. It does not mean that at all. Third thing that it doesn't mean, and this is really important, guys. I want you to, guys, I really want you to focus on this, is that authority doesn't mean automatic respect. Now, I want you to notice something in this passage that most people who want to argue that this passage is nothing but patriarchal, uh, Uh, oppressive traditionalism. I want you to see something that most people never take the time to see. Even though this text does give men, uh, give husbands headship over their wives, and even though this text, did you notice? Probably, ladies, you noticed this, that it commands women a couple of times to submit to their husbands. And it even comes back at the very end and it says, respect your husband. You notice that, right? It It commands that. I want you to notice Guys, listen to this. I want you to notice that this text never commands husbands to exert headship. 
Never. I'll bet you, I'll bet you didn't notice that. The only command that this text gives to husbands is to love your wives sacrificially. Now, why? What, what's the significance of that? Why, why does it only command you to love your wives sacrificially, but it doesn't ever command you to exert your authority in the marriage? Well, the significance of that, what it means is, is that headship is never something that can be taken or demanded. Headship is something that has to be received. It has to be earned. The clear implication of the text is that if a husband isn't loving his wife sacrificially, he has no right to headship in the marriage. Men, you want headship in your marriage? Love your wife until it's something that she wants to give you. The text never says, men, it never says rule your wife. It does say love your wife. And so headship is never something you exert. It's never something you demand. It's it's never something that you come along and say, I'm going to be the head of the family. It doesn't say that. It says love your wife sacrificially until she wants to give you that headship. Okay, those are three things that authority doesn't mean in the relationship. The question is, what does, what does it mean? It doesn't mean some things. It does mean two things that I want to mention t- today. And the first is, guys, I want you to understand that authority means accountability. It means accountability. Men, you are accountable for your family. You have the responsibility to lead your family. You have the responsibility, men, to lead your family relationally. You have the responsibility, men, the ultimate responsibility. Now, you can delegate it out if you and your wife decide that you want to delegate delegate it out. But you have the ultimate responsibility, men, to ensure the welfare of your family physically, emotionally, financially. You have that responsibility. Now, some, some couples divide that up, you know, by choice, and that's fine. But men, make sure you understand that you have the ultimate responsibility to make sure that your family is provided for. And, men, you have the responsibility to lead your family spiritually. Now, men, understand, that doesn't mean that you're responsible for every decision that every member of your family makes spiritually. All it means is that you're accountable to lead them spiritually. It means that you're responsible to ensure. Somebody, somebody once said that, you know, they said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And in the same way, men, with your family members, with your kids, with your wife, uh, it's your responsibility to make sure that you are leading your family to living water. Whether they drink or not, it's up to them. But it's your responsibility to give them every opportunity to meet Christ, to know Christ, and to grow spiritually. And it's your responsibility, men, to be modeling that in the home. And be modeling your own relationship with Christ in the home. That they see that, that they see the significance of that to you. That they see the significance of a relationship with Christ to you in all of the decisions that you make about work. And in the way that you do your work. And in the way that you uh, carry out your relationship with your wife. And in the way that you parent. 
in the way that you live your life, men. And I want to tell you something. Once this idea of accountability sinks in, uh, it will drive you to your knees. Because it's very humbling to understand that you're accountable for your family. And so headship means accountability. But it also means, because the husband is accountable for the family, I don't know a better way to say this, so I'm just going to say it this way. Because the husband is accountable for the family, authority means that you have tie-breaking authority. I, can't, I don't know a better way to say that. It's just that you have tie-breaking authority. And what I mean by tie-breaking authority is just this, that when a couple can't agree after a lot of talking and a lot of reasoning and hashing out and arguing and conflict, when a husband can't agree on something and a decision is necessary, and sometimes that happens, right? I mean, there are couples that would like to say, well, you know what, we don't, we just, if we can't agree on something, we just don't ever make a decision. Well, you haven't lived long enough. You haven't been married long enough. You haven't had kids yet because there are going to be times you're going to have to decide, are we going to send our kids to a public school or a private school? And uh, you can't just say, well, we, can, we don't agree. We're just not going to send our kid to school until we agree. You, your kid might be 20 before you ever agree on this subject. At some point, a decision has to be made on certain things. And if you come together and you guys have hashed it out and you guys, you've gotten both perspectives and you just can't agree, let the husband break the tie. Why? Well, Because in some way that I can't completely explain to you, it allows him to be masculine. And it allows you as a woman to be feminine. And that's the best that I can tell you. Now, I can tell you that in my own marriage, uh, I can count on one hand. Seriously, I mean this. I can count on one hand the number of times that this has happened. Where we have disagreed after hashing stuff out and hearing both sides. Um, a number of times it has happened where I broke the tie and made the decision. I mean, count them on one hand. I mean, in 23 years of marriage, one hand. Because usually one of us will realize that the other person has, you know, better perspective, better reasoning than the other. But on a handful of occasions that we haven't come to agreement, I break the tie. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. What that means is that I'm also accountable for the outcome. Good or bad. And I can't blame the outcome on my wife if it turns out bad. You know, Adam tried that. Right? He tried that, and God didn't let him get away with it, and he's not going to allow me to get away with it, and he's not going to allow you to get away with it, guys. But I also want to tell you, ladies, something. I, want, you know, I, I never want you, I don't ever want you guys to think that I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to look at my marriage, Amy and I, or me personally, as the standard by which you're to live. It is always Christ is the standard. But, but I, I do want to tell you, I want to tell you something about my wife that is really cool. I have made, at times in our marriage, some really boneheaded decisions. I mean, like some really knucklehead decisions that turned out really poorly and that my wife told me, 
this is not going to go well. (laughs) But I want you to know something. She has never once told me afterwards, I told you so. She has never once rubbed my nose in it. And she could have. And I will tell you something, ladies, one of the best ways to get your husband to not be a leader in your home is when he makes a mistake to rub his nose in it and to tell him what a loser he is and to tell him what a failure he is. promise you, he'll never be a leader if you do that. Every time I've blown it in some way that, you know, I, I do it differently the next time. Every time she has come alongside and supported me in that. Headship means authority, men. But you never take that authority. You always receive it from your spouse. It's time to wrap up. Here's the point. Your marriage needs Christ. Look, if if you don't have Christ in your marriage, don't try this at home. (laughs) It will never work. You will screw it up. But your marriage desperately needs Christ. Without Christ, you'll never be able to heal the distortions that exist between men and women. Never. There will always be abuse and there will always be distortion. There will be, uh, there will be the husband will tend toward uh, tyr- tyrannical, uh, demeaning oppression. And, and the woman will, turn, will, will tend toward over, being overly dependent and even masochistic. You will always abuse this. But with Christ, the point of this passage is that Christ can heal all of that if you would bring your life and your marriage under his authority. He can heal it all. But that begins with bringing your individual life under his authority. And if you have never done that, if you've never come to the place in your life where you've said, yes, Lord Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the authority over my life. I want you to be my savior. If you've never done that, you can do it right here in the privacy of your seat. And it just simply means coming before God and saying, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I'm broken. And I believe what the Bible says, that you died for the sins of humanity. And no matter what it is that I've done, you you died for my sins. I believe that you can heal me. I believe that you can heal my marriage. I want you to be my, my Savior and Lord. I come in under your authority. And if you do that, the Bible says, that God will give you new life. He'll change you completely. And he'll change your marriage completely. Would you bow your heads with me? And if you've never come to a place where you have said that to the Lord, today would be a good day to do it. Right now, right here. Lord, be my Savior. Lord Jesus Christ, I trust in you. I have sinned, I am broken, and I trust in you. Lord Jesus, I, I know that there are people here this morning that marriages, that their marriages need healed.
Lord, I pray that you would take this text that we've been studying today and I pray that you would apply it deeply into those marriages and that you would bring healing and hope into those marriages. Lord, there are people here today that have never come to a place where they have said, I need you to be my Savior and Lord. I want to come in under your authority, Lord Jesus. Lord, for those people, I pray that today you would open their hearts that they would hear the gospel for the first time. We affirm today that not only did you die on a cross, but you were raised from the dead. And that because you were raised from the dead, you can give us new life. That you can heal broken people. That you can heal a broken planet. And that you can heal broken marriages. Would you do that today, Lord? We love you, Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in you, and it's in you alone. We believe that the cross changes everything, even marriages. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.